on the record on news talk it's very good morning to you this is Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock with on the record here on news talk if you want to contact the program you can do so in the usual ways 53106 for the text that will cost you 30 cent or as always you can get me on twitter at Kieran Cuddy with me in studio today picking their way through today's Sunday papers Dr Ilona Duffy a GP in Monaghan Colette Brown barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent and John O'Brennan professor of European politics at NUI Maynooth good morning everyone good morning, good morning. Um, before we get into anything I'll just run through the headlines making the front pages for people at home who have seen the papers yet the Sunday Independent leads with dying woman is ignored by HSE this is in relation to the cervical cancer smear scandal the HSE has been accused of failing to release medical records to a woman who is according to her solicitor dying from cervical cancer we'll come back to that story in just a few minutes time the Sunday Times leads with Brexit backers golden Kremlin links exposed I'm not even going to try and (laughs) summarise this story in about 10 seconds it's so complicated again we're going to get back to that one uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, There's a photo as well on the front page of uh, Simona Halep, uh, the world number one tennis player. She won the French Open yesterday, having lost three Grand Slam finals in a row. The Sunday Business Post leads with revealed state-hired investigators to spy on hospital consultants. The state-hired private investigators to spy on hospital consultants as part of its efforts to thwart a massive pay claim that is currently before the High Court. A big photo as well of David Drum on the front page of the Business Post and plenty of coverage in the fallout of his conviction as well. Inside Uh, The Irish Mail on Sunday, secret bid to halt Russian spy centre. Government will be given unprecedented powers to block planning as Russia starts expanding its embassy. And the Sunday World leads with, I'm doing fine, I'm alive. Poor Bobby was killed just because he was nearest the gunman. And this is obviously in relation to the shooting in the... uh, Boxing Club in Bray during the week. Plenty of coverage inside that paper and inside all the papers actually on the fallout from that shooting as well. Uh, I mentioned a couple of stories there on the front page that we might come back to uh, and we'll start with that one on the front page of the Sunday Independent. And Ilona Duffy, I might uh, come to you on this first. Um, Dying woman is ignored by HSC. This is in relation to an application for medical records. And I suppose that the the tenor of the article is essentially that the HSC is is dragging its feet in releasing them. Is that right? Yeah, it beggars belief that this story is still ongoing because at this stage, one would imagine the HSC would just have hands up, deal with all of these cases expedite anything that needs to be done for these women and and you know I think in this case the, the in the paper at the moment it's talking about a woman um, who's saw her files or medical records on three occasions and they still haven't been released and interestingly enough 46 women have requested their files to their solicitor and only 10 have been released so even with the whole thing of GDPR I don't understand why they haven't been able to get these Yeah is there anything in that would be in medical files that there, there would be any reason you couldn't release them to the patient Yeah the only reason would be if there was something in your medical records that could be detrimental to your mental health or your for you to find out something. So that might be in the case of somebody with a psychiatric illness where a family member had been talking to the doctor about you explaining what was going on and it might be deemed well that would break cause a breakdown in your relationship with them. So there's absolutely nothing in this. And you know it, it really beggars of of them just continuing to protect themselves, continuing to stall things. And and it's just not acceptable. Now, I am aware that they are doing great work to try and contact all the women and offering kind of packages of care and everything. But, you know, that that's only their basic rights. And at this stage, all of these women, some of them on a time frame with perhaps terminal cancer, need to have all of these issues sorted in the courts and, and have 
compensation applied to them. So we, we were talking about this last week as well. Susan Mitchell from the Business Post was in and uh, we were talking about the fact that as well as, as releasing medical records, there have been promises made to provide uh, medical cards, to provide ch- childcare if that was needed, support. So there was a big long list of things promised by Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar and uh, as recently as last week in the Dáil, I think Stephen Donnelly uh, stood up and t- had a, an example of a woman from his own constituency who was kind of asking for loans of money a family to pay for transport to hospitals that essentially th- it's it's not just medical records there's delays in dealing with all of this absolutely and these women you know it's not them it's just them it's their families so We've got to, I mean, it's their basic right at this stage to have this done. And I don't, I really don't understand why they're stalling on any of this. Yeah, I don't think uh, anyone does. Uh, I mentioned another story as well that's on the front pages, uh, John, and I might come to you with that. And it's uh, the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, Brexit backers, golden Kremlin links exposed. Can you explain this <laughs> story to us? Well, how long have we got, Kieran? This reads we have like two hours. Don't worry about John it, John Le Carré. Uh, it is really extraordinary. It details these deep and extensive contacts between two key figures in the Leave campaign in the EU in Britain, uh, Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, uh, with the Russian ambassador in London. Uh, allegations that they were essentially being bought off by the Russians who were offering them business deals of various kinds. There are uh, allegations of uh, links to the Trump campaign, which of course have been explored in the United States by Robert Mueller and his team. So this is all very, very murky and it suggests that, as in the United States, there was deep Russian interference in the Brexit referendum in 2016, much deeper than anybody on the Leave side has admitted. And there's an intrusion Intriguing role here for this journalist uh, Isabel Oakshot, who was writing a has written a book uh, about the the, uh, the Brexit campaigners Aaron Banks, Wigmore, and others called the Bad Boys of Brexit. Mm. And in the process of writing that book, they turned over to her tens of thousands of their emails. She appears to have sat on those emails for months. She is a hardline fanatical Brexiteer. That it is suggested is the reason she may have sat on this. And meanwhile, the Sunday Times and The Guardian, and in particular, heroic journalist called Carl Caddowalder, who you may remember from the Cambridge Analytica investigation, they have been following this up and essentially Isabel Oakshot has been forced uh, to reveal uh, all of these emails and the email trail suggests deep Russian subterfuge in the Brexit referendum. Uh, Why would the Russians be backing leave? Because the Putin strategy, not just for Britain, but for Europe and the United States, is to uh, to act as a spoiler, to disturb the status quo as much as possible. And if you could... uh, get Britain out of the European Union, then you achieve a win. By definition, if, you're, if, you're, if your mindset is, as Putin's is, a zero-sum one, and you manage to get Britain out, then that is a huge victory. But I think we have to connect it also to what's happening in the United States and to other jurisdictions in Europe where these Russian misinformation campaigns have been part of a very, very well-thought-out strategy trying to undermine pluralism and liberal democracy where it exists in Europe and the US and elsewhere. The, the, the argument then that's made against it is, well, look, they, they might have interfered, but it would have been the same result anyway. I'm not so sure about that. I mean, Aaron Banks spent millions of pounds of his own money. Uh, we are learning more and more about the 
murky connections between different elements of the League campaign. Uh, the DUP, for example, spent hundreds of thousands of pounds during the campaign, but not in Northern Ireland, in Northern England. And we have yet to discover where that money came from. So there are, I think, really deep and fundamental questions about the nature of the influence of this money on the Brexit referendum and, in particular, uh, how much of that we can trace to Moscow. Yeah, we're going to come back to Brexit, I suppose, in in another context as well and what shape it's going to take and what it might look like um, in just a little while. Uh, but a, a final story on the front pages that I wanted to touch on with the front page, Colette, of the, the Sunday Business Post, uh, that essentially the uh, consultants were being spied on. Yeah, so uh, people may or may not be aware that next week in the High Court, uh, a case that has been rumbling on for some time now is going to get started. And that's a, a breach of contract action by 700 hospital consultants who allege that the HSC failed to pay them pay increases that were due to them. So in 2008, they signed a new contract. The first part of that contract, or the, there was an initial pay increase that was paid, a second pay increase wasn't. And then, in fact, all of their pay was docked by 15 to 25%, leaving a lot of them very unhappy. Uh, they sued. And as part of the defence strategy that, according to the Sunday Post, was agreed at a cabinet meeting in April 2017, uh, the HSC decided to snoop on the hospital consultants, so set private investigators on them, following them to and from their private practice to see whether or not they were treating more private patients than they were supposed to be under the terms of these contracts. So in return for higher pay increases, a lot of these consultants would have signed up to working for longer periods in the public uh, health system and not treating as many private patients. And so the HSE was obviously hopeful that it would catch them red handed treating loads of private patients. Unfortunately for the HSE, it appears from the Sunday Business Post story that actually the private investigators didn't really turn up much dirt at all. And in fact, there were only minor breaches, I think, that were caught. It it, it all sounds very nefarious, but is this not run of the mill in in, in maybe contractual disputes that well, you might send someone to have a look at the other side? Well, it's certainly the case that in personal injuries actions, you'll often find that insurance companies will set private investigators on people if they think that they have a fraudulent claim or they're kind of inflating the kind of injuries that they say they have. I suppose the difference here is that this is an employment case and consultants have to remain working within the HSC and you can't imagine that it's going to do much for the kind of atmosphere, the work atmosphere or collegiality if in fact uh, all these uh, hospital consultants find out that uh, they've been spied on for I, I not not sure uh, how long. I mean, the case it could cost the HSC up to seven hundred million if the if the if the doctors win their case. There's seven hundred doctors who are taking the case. There's going to be ten initial cases heard, the kind of lead cases mm-hmm. next week. But there are further two thousand people that could be impl- um, uh, that could also benefit if the judgment goes the way of the hospital consultants. Uh, Ilona, if uh, I, I'm, I'm struck that GPs are in their own kind of row at the moment over Fempi pay cuts. If 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 you found out that the government had uh, sent spies around to your practice to make sure, I don't know what you were doing, that you weren't charging too much for repeat prescriptions or something, would you be angry? Well, it's interesting because on Twitter at the moment, doctors are saying, come on, spy on me and see how much work we're doing. And consultants are saying that. <laughs> sure. saying, come and see the hours are working. I, I think one one interesting thing in this, it's interesting, it's the HSE didn't want to go ahead with this, but the Department of Health insisted that they do this. And obviously the Department of Health feedback to the government. So, you know, you can see where this has come from. The HSE basically 
basically said they didn't feel this should be done. They didn't feel that it was good for working relationships with the consultants. And like back to the basics, this is something that is a contractual right. They were promised this. This is what they signed up to, to agree to that whole thing of working more hours in the public system, less hours in the private system. And it is all wrong. There is no other group. And I, I mean, it seems to be medics seem to be free for everybody, for the government, this government just to decide willy nilly that they're going to just cut any funding they want to, any salaries they want to. So it is unacceptable. And for them to pick these 10 key people and decide to follow them around, absolutely, I think is appalling. It's really, it's awful. Uh, 700 million euro, is that what the the outstanding figure is at the moment that they say they're owed? It's a lot of money out of the health budget, isn't it? It's a lot of money, but this is people's pay. This is their right. I mean, I don't think there's any other group. If If we said to our guards, if we said to our train drivers, actually, you know, I know we promised you that money back there, but we're not giving it to you. Okay, just full stop not giving you I know you've done the extra work I know you continue to prop up a dysfunctional service we're still not giving it to you and especially when we know in a time when we cannot get doctors to come back to Ireland when we know in a time when consultant posts are lying empty or are being filled by people who are not on the specialist register meaning they haven't finished their specialist training in whatever area they're in it's creating an unsafe environment for sick people in Ireland and we have got to protect these doctors and we've got to ensure that we're getting new doctors to come back and doctors who've gone abroad for their training to come back. They ain't going to be coming back to this. Uh, Pascal Donoghue, actually, there's a number of affidavits have been filed in the case and Pascal mm. Donoghue has made that point in an affidavit that he swore he said that it would have catastrophic consequences for the health service if they were to, if the doctors were to win their case. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much weight really a, a court can give give to that. Obviously, there is a public policy element there, but I mean, contractual claims are usually, you know, it's, it's, it's fought on the basis of the contractual terms. So I think the legal advice as well that the HSC was given initially advised them not to fight the case. So it will be interesting need to see how it goes next week. John. Really important point here. Who authorised the spying? Uh, the Business yeah. Post article says that the surveillance was first initiated by a division within the HSE, but it was not cleared by senior HSE management. And when uh, part of their legal team uh, stated that the HSE believed that this surveillance was inappropriate, they were overruled by somebody in the Department of Health. So there's clearly some senior civil servant perhaps acting on uh, the instructions of government, we don't know, who is authorising, who is overriding senior people in the HSE saying we need to spy on consultants. That is extraordinary. We really do need to find out where this leads to and who authorised this. And if they're that worried about consultants working, I mean, we, we saw recently where three prominent orthopaedic consultants, three fantastic guys resigned from the matter, from the matter public. And part of their rationale for that was that basically they're sitting in there doing nothing. Then theatres are cancelled, surgery lists are cancelled repeatedly, outpatient clinics are cancelled, that they go in to do nothing, knowing that these patients that they're attending to in the clinics who need surgery can't get it. And the final thing I'd say about the money is, look at all of this has been budgeted for. There's no way they haven't been planning and knowing this was coming, especially when the HSE legal team told them, forget it, this is a no-brainer, it can't be won. So, you know, it's easy to throw out figures, oh my God, 700 million going to overpaid, underworked consultants. That's the kind of message they want to get out there. For getting that these are the same guys and girls they need in the hospitals to save their lives. The consultants then, as I said, are the front page of the Business Post. There's plenty of coverage of GPs as well inside the papers. The Business Post, page three. Most GPs favour opt-in abortion service. Susan Mitchell, uh, the Sunday Independent, 
Page eight GPs seek opt-in for abortions from Alan O'Keefe and Newton Emerson writing about the abortion uh, debate and the referendum result in the links to uh, Stormont. Uh, on the GP's position, Alona, at the moment, that, that was a GP buddy survey is what Su- Susan Mitchell is referring mm-hmm. to, where I think over 90% of respondents said that they weren't in a position or they weren't happy to, to sign up to the service. Do we take it that's a bit of kind of, I suppose, negotiating tactics? Actually, I don't think it is. I think I think there are a few issues in this. Number one, the government made the decision and publicised that, that this was going to be a GP provided service. Now, that's our nearest counterparts are the UK and and that's not how it's provided. It's not provided in general practice. GPs may refer or women may self-refer to clinics to provide this as a special service. And it's different in the UK. You have to be seen and signed off by two doctors. Now, in many cases, that's just a simply a formality. But it is it is separate and there are, you know, counselling services provided both before and afterwards and follow up if there are any complications. So I suppose the government came out and said GPs are going to be doing it. At no stage that did they talk to GPs. And now they're coming back looking to talk to GPs and saying, well, look, you're going to do it aren't you? And I suppose the GP body uh, survey is interesting in that like up to and over 900 GPs and some of the questions answer questions. So I think the big thing is GPs have said that if a patient comes to them and they are a conscientious, conscientious objector, meaning that they don't feel in their own conscience that they would be able to provide that mm. termination of pregnancy service that they will refer on. So over 60% have said that and I think only 20% said they wouldn't feel comfortable with that. The majority of GPs are saying they don't feel that they will be able to provide this in their practices. And why? Most of us are running practices. We're seeing 15 to 20. 15 would be quiet. 20 would be the average per session, meaning per morning and then again in the afternoon. I mean, my Monday last week, I saw 20 in the morning, 23 telephone consultations, lists of bloods, reports and everything to be done. So that's the kind of measure of the work we're doing. Now, there's absolutely no way that somebody coming in with a crisis pregnant is going to be managed in 10 minutes. They can't be. And also, what if they can't get an appointment? We're now facing waiting lists in general practice, just like in the UK, where for a, rel- a routine appointment, you ring, you could be told it's two weeks. If it's an emergency, you'll be seen on that day. But that could be a shorter slot. That could be a five minute slot. So again, we need to know that these women who are in a time of crisis, who are going to need time to talk about this. And, and many women come and say, listen, I can't go ahead with this pregnancy. And with enough time, with enough counselling, with enough help and offering of supports, I would say a lot of those, or a lot of those come to me, actually say, you know, I'm going to go ahead with it. And yes, there are those that I've facilitated and helped arrange their terminations. But that has taken a huge amount of time. And and it takes a certain amount of skill as well. So I suppose what the GPs are saying is, number one, we're in crisis. Number two, we can't take on extra workload. And number three, it needs to be done in a protected environment with protected time and guarantees of the supports. And we have no guarantees of supports from the from There's the not HSC. a huge amount, though. If you, if you Even if the amount of terminations that are happening at the moment and happening in the UK were to double, it only works out at about five per GP per year. It's not a huge amount. I think you've also got to remember, like, you know, my dad's still working in practice. I don't think there are many young girls who are going to be going to him. Or, and it's not just young girls. We actually see quite a cohort in older women who've maybe kind of got yeah, caught out of the point, surprise yeah. pregnancy. But I tend to find that, that, you know, there will be certain GPs in my practice. I'm the only full time female in my practice. So obviously I'm going to see those patients. But again, it's the whole thing. Are you, do you honestly think that we're going to have women ringing saying, listen, I have to be seen today and, you know, I need a, I need a termination of pregnancy. I don't think so. I think, you know, that's why men 
many of them won't want it on their records with us. And I know there is that whole thing about continuity of care. We should have it. Do we fudge? Do we write a, another code? But there, there are ways of how are we going to manage that in medical records? How are we going to ensure they're not really getting a PMA? When someone comes with a crisis pregnancy at the moment, you can there is support services in place that you refer them to counselling services. Like, is it not a case that those could be bolstered so that it's not expect the GP isn't expected yeah, well, to be the counsellor? So. I'd, I'd hope so. But again, we there's no talk, there, there's no discussion about that yet from them, even with regards to those women who would need scans, because we know that probably up to nine weeks, if you're sure that a woman's dates are correct, then it is safe to give the, the morning after pill, the tablet that will induce kind of a, a, like a miscarriage. But between nine and 12, the whole question is, can you be sure about the dates? And the only way of being sure about the dates is actually with a scan. And that's how it's done in other countries, that a scan is mandatory to confirm it. How are we going to get those scans? There have been rumours they're saying, oh, well, the medica- the early pregnancy units will deal with that. That's totally inappropriate. A woman who's thinking of ending her pregnancy, going along and sitting beside another woman who's crying because she's losing her pregnancy, completely wrong for both women. And, you know, and again, won't happen because, again, hospital services overrun. So it needs to be it needs to be have ring fence funding, ring fence supports. And there are many GPs out there who are willing to provide this. And I think what needs to happen is that these patients are able to look and see who does it locally, who'll provide this service locally in a, in a sensitive way, in a supportive way, who will discuss all of their options with them and help them through the whole process. And these women will go back to their GPs. And I think that's the thing, you know, GPs aren't saying absolutely no. Yeah. But I think GPs are saying that we don't feel that automatically it all goes to general practice. Colette, is the sense in government that this is kind of could get a bit sticky? Well, I think certainly, I mean, anything to do with adding, um, adding um, obligations to GPs or any kind of doctors is always going to get. I mean, people will recall that when they brought in the free healthcare for under fives, I mean, that was a hugely contentious issue at the time as well, because GPs said that they didn't have the resources in order to be able to facilitate the government's plans. I mean, the difficulty for the government here is that we had to have an abortion in order to, you know, legalise access to abortion services. And it would have been preemptive of the government to go ahead and have kind of talks with GPs in advance of that referendum. Now, you know the referendum is only a couple of weeks old GPs are beginning to see you know that this is coming down the tracks at them and they obviously want to state their case quite um, seriously and there there will be problems implementing this I'm sure there will be Uh, everybody knows that GPs are very um, very under pressure we have a shortage of GPs in the country but I think in terms of the government it was a difficult one for them to manage just because of the legal issues All right. look we're going to get back to I'm sure some of those issues uh, after the break I mentioned Newton Emerson writing about the, the relationship between uh, the, the abortion referendum result here in Northern Ireland uh, Leo Varadkar as well I talk about uh, sticky politics uh, kind of finding himself in sticky sticky situation uh, during the week as well his visits to the north all of that coming up after this short break On the Record On News Talk. Yes, this is On The Record. Kieran Goodhey with you until one o'clock today. With me in studio, Dr. Ilona Duffy, who's a GP in Monaghan, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent, and John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at NUI Maynooth. I mentioned uh, in the papers uh, stories relating to the North, uh, Leo Radker's trip up there, but also uh, Newton Emerson was writing about uh, the North and... Uh, abortion and the fallout of the abortion referendum here, the headline abortion and the link to, to Stormont resurrection. Uh, and 
Colette, he touches on, I suppose, a change in tone as much as anything amongst the DUP even about how they're talking about this issue. Yeah, well, I mean, that change in tone wasn't really evident in Westminster last no. <laughs> last, last, last week when Sammy Wilson was raging about babies being discarded in bins. But I mean, in, in any event, what Newton Emerson is essentially saying is that... We won't hold all DUP to it, Sammy Wilson's <laughs> standards. That, uh, that, that, that the abortion issue could be a, a way or a, be kind of u- leveraged, I suppose, to bring Stormont back to life because essentially if there is going to be any change in the situation in the north where uh, abortion services are governed by a law that dates from 1857 uh, whereby a woman who accessed an abortion could be uh, jailed for life essentially um, if there is going to be any change any legal change there it's going to require Stormont uh, gets back uh, that uh, that the um, or politicians up there start doing their their jobs again, um, and he does make the point, however, that there's a petition of concern in in which has governed uh, Stormont previously, whereby if the DUP, for example, or Sinn Fein, for example, even if there is a, a majority that support, for example, they supported a majority supported same-sex marriage a couple of years ago, but the DUP objected using their petition of concern, so they can veto things despite it ostensibly having democratic support, and there is a suggestion, I think it came from Peter Robinson in his speech a number of days ago, that maybe the petition of concern could be done away with and maybe that uh, policies and changes in the North could actually be governed by majority will. Yeah, it was actually an extraordinary speech, Peter, that interview was out Peter Robinson a, a couple of days ago. He kind of flied under the radar, flew under the radar a, a little bit here. Um, in, in terms of Northern Ireland as well, I, I mentioned Leo Varadkar's trip up there and there's plenty of coverage of it in, in the papers. Um Maria Calder and Taoiseach has demeaned office with Republican courtship. Owen Harris, Leo's risky failure launch only helps Sinn Féin. Uh, Justine McCarthy, though, in the Sunday Times, Radker can ride wave of progress. What stood out for you, John? Well, I think Justine McCarthy, as ever, gets it exactly right. She says that the party political system in Northern Ireland, which has crystallised around the extremes of DUP Sinn Féin, is completely out of sync with uh, popular opinion, which increasingly kind of converges around centrism and decency, actually, that there's a huge body of opinion that's just alienated from Sinn Féin and the DUP and that Leo Varadkar has a ready audience there. You must be doing something right, I think, when you're annoying uh, Republicans and unionists simultaneously. (laughs) I mean, the Republicans are annoyed because he goes to the Orange Lodge. It was a really important visit and the optics of it were quite extraordinary, viewed from Dublin or from Belfast. Uh, And I think what Justine is saying that uh, if politicians could be courageous enough, they could kind of ride the zeitgeist and actually do really important social change. Uh, so at, whether it's Northern Ireland or whether it's the Republic, and it shows again how ridiculous the idea of a border is because ideas travel and people in Northern Ireland can you know, can really see uh, that, that, that the impact of the um, uh, abortion, the uh, repeal referendum here, it's clearly had an energising effect on campaigning groups there. What about the argument, and Maria Cal touches on it in her article today that I mentioned, that uh, look, that, that it's right that Leo Varadkar is in Northern Ireland, that he's, I suppose, building bridges, <laughs> use that old cliche, uh, but that these are the wrong ways to do it, that there's plenty of Republican or nationalist community events that are on that don't celebrate a, a, a breakout from Longkesh in which a prison officer was stabbed to death, stabbed three times. And in the same way, the Orange Order doesn't represent anywhere near a majority of unionists, that essentially he's out kind of courting the extremes when instead he should be courting much closer to the centre. Well, let's not forget that 
This was, I think, his sixth visit in total since he became Taoiseach. Uh, and his visits haven't just involved high-level delegations, contact with those. Uh, but, you know, the Orange Order is important in terms of unionism. And I think it was entirely right that he should go there. And I think the symbolism of visits like that is very significant. And it wasn't just about his contact with uh, officials of the Orange Order. If you look at um, the reception that he got outside, for example, I think that was indicative of this greater receptivity in Northern Ireland to a different way of doing things. And that's why I say that the politicians are completely out of step. Stormont really needs to step up, not least because Northern Ireland's voice is not being heard in the Brexit talks. Can I have an Orange Order Museum visit? Doesn't excite me, I have to say. No, I don't. I don't well, I, I don't think it excites too many people. But I suppose the danger for Leo Varadkar and for people in, in here is that if he goes to the Orange Order, then there has to be some kind of balancing trip to somewhere. And so he went to West Belfast and he went mm. to this Vela uh, festival that is supported by, you know, kind of hardline re- Republicans. So, I mean, that's, I think, the problem of politics in the North as well. Everything is such a fine balancing act. People take offence very, very easily. Arlene Foster was giving out about Leo Varadkar again. I think the um, the, the unlike her. <laughs> so the, the the problem for northern politicians with Leo Varadkar, I think, is that our voice is being represented so well in the Brexit talks, and their voice isn't. Um, and they see really that Brexit, despite the DUP having you know given it its full throated support, they see that maybe this could be the thing you know that ultimately scuppers the union. And I think you know there is a lot of concern about that. Yeah, we'll get on to Brexit then because there's loads of coverage of Brexit in the papers as you'd imagine that technical note that was released from the the UK government during the week I thought the most remarkable thing was that a a spokesperson for Theresa May in the wake of it said I think the important thing to focus on is that we have an agreed policy at Cabinet like that that was the big achievement was that they finally agreed on on six pages of text Uh, but in terms of the coverage today uh, the Sunday Independent page 26 Dan O'Brien breakdown in Brexit talks now more likely than ever would you go along with that John? Yeah Uh, Dan is not somebody who is prone to hyperbole. Uh, He's right. We're reaching a critical point in the talks, both the June European Council and the real end point, which will be October. The deal has got to be done by then. And the British government is still at war with itself. That's the reality. On Thursday morning, Mrs May had to talk Davis down from the resignation ledge. And it's suggested that there were... Uh, possibly half the cabinet members who would have gone with him. And the compromise that they ended up with uh, was one that uh, suggests their position is still completely unresolved. The two key paragraphs of it were paragraph 6 and paragraph 26. Paragraph 6 on the backstop suggested that the UK would remain aligned with the European Union Customs Union indefinitely. And then paragraph 26 says this has to be time limited, has to end at the end of 2021. Now, those two positions are uh, uh, mutually opposed. And so Michel Barnier and his team are wondering in Brussels, what is the British position? We're facing three days. They're not the now. only ones wondering. <laughs> not the only ones. We're facing three days of very intense talks in Brussels. And while all of that is going on, we're going to have two days of intense debate in Westminster in the House of Commons. The government has been defeated 15 times on this withdrawal legislation. So it's come back to the Commons now. And it could be that the British government is defeated in the Commons this week. There are a number of circumstances in which that might happen. But the position of the Labour Party is 
uh, equally unclear. Jeremy Corbyn seems to want to remain in the customs union, not in the single market. He's as addicted to this notion of having your cake and eating it as many of the Leave people are in the Conservative Party. Uh, so there is, uh, I think, deep incomprehension in Brussels and elsewhere about the British position. And I just wonder whether a week from now we'll be any clearer about what their position actually is. Yeah, the Business Post editorial, actually, the only solution to the Brexit chaos is another British election would suggest that the Labour Party are kind of have a unified position. They don't really, although they are softening, they yeah. have softened Yeah, but there's a, there's a wonderfully cutting line actually in that um, in that editorial in the Sunday Business Post and it says, rarely has there been such a low calibre collection of politicians in office in Britain, <laughs> which is quite scathing. Um, I mean, the past week in British politics, there's been a lot of, you know, disasters, a lot of, you know, chaos, but I think that has been the most shambolic week to date and that's even saying something. I mean, we've had David Davis, you know, almost going to walk the plank. For the fifth time. We had Boris Johnson and his private conversation that wasn't really that private at all when there was a secret recording. He was shocked, leak. he said. We've Absolutely had, shocked. We've had um, Probably recorded it himself. Boris. <laughs> <laughs> utter confusion about what a backstop is, wh- where where it's going to be applied. I mean, it just goes on and on and because on. They, they and actually, they were never prepared for this. They really did not believe that it was going to, you know, when they when they had their vote on this, they didn't think it was going to pass. And it goes back in a way to the interference that we talked about earlier, the Russian interference. It's very similar to America. It was deep unhappiness with people on the ground about other issues. And again, it was similar in America. That's why the Trump got the vote. That's why the Brexit got the vote, because people are unhappy with their lives, are unhappy with lots of little issues, immigrants, all kind of unemployment, all of the same things are in the States. And that's what led us to where we are now. And now, you know, every politician is worried, what, how is this going to impact on me? Are the people that I represent are going to vote for me going to suffer when it when it goes through? So that's why... Well, I think politi- you know, well, the Tories and government seem to be more concerned with their own political <laughs> careers rather than rather than anything else. And I think that's the point the Sunday Business Post is making as well, that these politicians in England, uh, the, the UK government at the moment, they're just not up to the task. They're mm-hmm. not able for it. They don't have the capacity to do it it's it's chaos they can't organise anything nobody knows what the other there's all this factionalism there's all this infighting people trying to gain advantage Theresa May is in a very precarious decision I mean ultimately the reason I think that it's that things are as bad and as disorganised as they are is because she took that fateful decision to call a snap general election last year this time uh, last year it was the anniversary on Friday yes yeah. <laughs> so um, and she is now uh, you know the DUP are propping up her minority government it's just a complete disaster the Sunday Business Post says that the only thing really that can kind of shake things up and maybe change things would be if they had um, another election there. Personally, I don't agree with that because I don't think that the numbers would change very significantly. Maybe Labour could do a, a, a tiny bit better. But I mean, the Labour Party, the Labour Party position is almost as kind of incoherent as the Tories. Um, you know, it doesn't get that much of a spotlight because obviously they're not the ones in government who are trying to ne- negotiate all this. So I, I'm not sure that we do have a route out of this other than as Dan O'Brien yeah as a, a no deal you know exit and it is extraordinary to compare the uh disunity in London with the unity of the Irish political parties behind the government strategy on Brexit uh, ideologically they're very very divided and we're a much more Although Dan O'Brien criticises the government a, a bit you know makes the point that look the narrative that uh, that they've played a blinder is accurate to a degree but maybe they've applied a bit too much pressure since Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach uh, I don't agree actually uh, in most of their public pronouncements they have been very measured and very calm that applies to the Taoiseach and to Simon Coveney Minister for Foreign Affairs the EU side has been equally 
uh, unified, and that's, you know, 27 member states. Uh, So this is not insignificant, at least from our point of view. But I keep making the point that from the beginning, we were always a prisoner of the relative capacity or the political will of the British government to get a deal. And we're still in the position where we were asking them, what do you actually bloody well want? Ilona, you mentioned, you used the phrase there, uh, people on the ground, and Mary Regan is writing those, about those people on the ground in the Post Plus, the Sunday Business Post Plus section, a hard border, talking to those living and working on the border, and given this is your neck of the woods, GP mm-hmm. up in Monaghan, how much head scratching is going on? Well, with regards to health, lots, because there's so much kind of cross-border work going on, there's a, a programme called Caught and it's a cross-border kind of initiative. So all our ear, nose and throat, our ENT services in Monaghan and Cavan are provided by consultants who come from the north and that includes an anaesthetist. So the HSE pay for this service and similarly then the child cardiac services as cardiac surgery services are provided from the north in Crumlin. So we're having lots, even GP-wise, when I'm on call in my Castle Blaney Centre, um, we get patients coming from the north who are triage to come to us because we're nearer than the northern okay. kind of centre for on call. So there's lots of stuff going on. The other thing is, you know, the 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 access under the EU legislation that patients can access their healthcare anywhere in Europe. We find lots of people, and sure, we've read about in the papers, people coming in the busloads from Cork up to Belfast to get their cataracts done. So all of this is up in the air uh, with regards to health. Locally, I mean, obviously, I'm in a border town. Um, it has massive implications for us in that there's an awful lot of you know, crossing over the borders with regards to people who work in the north, live in the south and vice versa. Businesses like on last weekend, any bank holiday weekend in the north, you'll find Monaghan packed with people down here shopping. And and, and that's important. For, that's important for our our businesses. And one of the articles talked about, you know, even look at simple things like the EU border. I think it was in relation to Boris Johnson saying, oh, this is just such a small issue. The total EU eastern border is 6,000 kilometres and has 130 crossings. The Irish border between the north and the south is only 500 kilometres, but has 208 crossings. And I travel, one of my roles is a teaching job in, and I go to Cavan. And on that route from Clonus to Cavan alone, you go into the border five times. So, I mean, I remember, I remember the, the stops and stopping at the customs. Have you, are you carrying anything? And, you know, maybe having a look in the car to see where the electrical items and all of that. No way we want any of that back. Mm. And no way do we want anything with regards to business being able to flow locally, I suppose, and I won't talk it anymore, but we have two big businesses, Combilift, massive business, opened up massive new premises and massive job hire. But I mean, they're already, they've said they are preparing for Brexit and they're there. So that is going to impact negatively on the North and on the UK. And Monaghan Mushrooms, another big employer as well, saying, you know, they're looking to Germany rather than the UK for their business now too. So some of the big business are already preparing. Yeah, look, I mentioned that Mary Regan piece in the Post Plus. It's well worth a read. A hard border talking to those living and working on the border. Uh, Ilona Duffy, Colette Brown and John O'Rennan are staying put. We'll be back after this short break. On the record. On News Talk. As you are listening to On the Record, Kieran Cuddy here with you until one o'clock. Dr. Lona Duffy, Colette Brown, and John O'Brennan are still with me in studio, looking through the, the the stories making today's papers, the big stories. And Donald Trump is featured everywhere. Uh, John, I, I might start with you on this. Uh, there's a huge amount of coverage. I'm not going to read all the headlines because uh, the, the the greatest thing that stands out is that uh, Renaissance painting, the Angela Merkel <laughs> leaning on the table, uh, talking to Donald Trump. Uh, uh, 
uh, my take on it was that Donald Trump looks like he has all the power in that photo. He he just seems like he's being lectured to, but he doesn't care. And it is what have a duck's back. I don't yeah. know what your interpretation was. Well, the body was. language around the whole summit, and not just that photograph. Mm. And actually, there are different versions of that photograph depending on the angle. You think there's a Merkel's US version people. where they're all laughing, actually. Yeah, yeah. But it's not but, as good. You know, the <laughs> body language around the summit was really very, very negative. I cannot remember a similar G7 summit with that kind of tension around it. You saw it also at the earlier gender meeting where Trump disdained to turn up late. Uh, and then you can see those images of Christine Lagarde and Merkel looking at him. Justin Trudeau had already kicked off the meeting. But that is really the kind of theatre. The really serious point here is about the continuing fragmentation of and breakdown uh, in relationships between uh, Western countries. It's about NATO. It's about the European Union and the United States. That relationship fracturing Trump's imposition of tariffs, uh, his wild statements about being ripped off by the Europeans and others when actually tariffs have come down everywhere over decades to a point where they're now about one and a half percent where goods are, are, are concerned. But the really big thing here, I think, is that every week is bringing some new crises and the relationship between the United States and Europe uh, is getting worse and worse. And there's only one beneficiary from that, and that is Vladimir Putin and Russia. This script could have been written by Putin and his people, the script for a Trump presidency. They didn't think that he would win. Uh, but, I mean, you saw that ridiculous statement that Trump made that Russia should be brought back into the G7. I mean, that could have been written by a Kremlin spin doctor. So there are really serious issues. Uh, and I think this is going to get much worse before it gets better, if it gets better at all. And there was that bizarre situation then as well, as you mentioned, where there was agreement or seemed to be agreement mm. uh, yesterday evening. And then se- things seemed to change after the event when everyone had left. Uh, here's Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after Trump had left and he was tweeting furiously Trudeau firing back, saying he's going to impose retaliatory measures to answer Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminium. It would be with regret, but it would be with absolute certainty and firmness that we move forward with retaliatory measures on July 1st, applying equivalent tariffs to the ones that the Americans have uh, unjustly applied to us. Uh, I have made it very clear to the President that it is not something we relish doing, but it is something that we absolutely will do because Canadians were polite, we're reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around. Kanesh, there was people, maybe it was kind of a victory of hope over uh, over expectation that uh, the the man bends to the office, that once Donald Trump got in there, essentially. I'm not sure there was, was ever that expectation. About <laughs> really? Donald maybe Donald it was. Or one that could accommodate his ego, the yeah. size of it. Um, it, it, it hasn't happened, obviously, <laughs> if anyone did expect it uh, forlornly. Uh, it's it's amazing that we're kind of at this prospect of a trade war between Canada and the United States. I know. I mean, it's, it's it's like that. Remember, it was that movie Canadian Bacon where they <laughs> talked about invading Canada. I mean, with John Candy. Yeah, it's it's just a reflection of how bad things have gone. That essentially, you know, Canada and America are now about to have a, a have, have have a trade war. I mean, I think in relation to Trump, he's actually managed to tarnish the office more than possibly anyone thought that he would be able to do, and quicker than anybody kind of feared that he would. And it's how do world leaders how do they engage with this with this man, this creature? It's uh, uh, dur- during the week he uh, said at that summit that Trump told his fellow leaders that Amer- 
America was fighting for a free trade system with no tariffs, no barriers and no subsidies. And he says this in the teeth of having imposed all of these tariffs on steel and aluminium and he still comes back with this in a straight face. And the thing about Trump is that what seems to happen with him is that he agrees with whoever's in the room with him, talking to him at that particular moment. Then he leaves the room and somebody else says he's here and he starts mm. tweeting madly. You cannot rely on anything he says. His position on everything is very fluid. It changes. He believes that he has to engage in this really divisive, um, violent almost rhetoric in order to get his point across. And he always has to be seen or wants to be perceived as being the winner in any kind of meeting or in, 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 in any meeting that he has with anybody. And obviously he isn't coming a, a, across like that at the moment. And I think it's a level of the frustration and the anger that people are now experiencing world leaders, very calm, rational, cuddly people like Justin Trudeau have finally kind of lost the rag now. And it is going to be very interesting to see whether, you know, they go ahead and introduce those tariffs. Uh, John, the, the the some of the reaction to, to what happened at the G7 was the, I suppose, the relative weakness of some of the European positions in that Europe is still divided along nation state lines. Like, is Donald Trump remarkably, could he be the one who uh, <laughs> pushes and federalizes Europe to the point that actually the G7 becomes the G3. You've just got Japan, the EU and the United States and possibly Russia eventually as well. Well, there is undoubtedly uh, a dynamic of that kind evident in European integration history that it takes a real crisis for some kind of uh, development to take place. Uh, the Europeans are at sixes and sevens on all kinds of issues, very divided on the Eurozone, very divided on migration and other issues. But I think this is actually impelling them to cooperate more than otherwise they might be inclined to do. And I think we might get an indication of that at the June European Council Summit. Macron has put forward very extensive proposals for Eurozone reform. The Germans have been pushing back against it. But the indications this week are that they are actually beginning to agree on more substantive things than had been expected even a week ago. And I think Trump probably has a lot to do with that. I think we might see more of that uh, in the months ahead. But Merkel and Macron are going to have to really get hold of this to take a leadership role and exert themselves, particularly on migration, where Central and East European countries uh, are refusing to cooperate with the European Commission and the plans it's put forward to try and cooperatively manage what is actually a very common problem. Then there are all sorts of other headaches that come in, such as the instability in Italy uh, and so on. So there's a whole range of things. But I think the key to this may well be the revival of the Franco-German engine, Macron and Merkel stepping up and really taking leadership uh, seriously and exhibiting it in the European and global context. Uh, Elona, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to give you a final word on the, the leader of the free world. <laughs> I think he needs to be medicated. <laughs> I think that's enough said. Medication, that's the answer. Dr. Elona Duffy, GP in Monaghan, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent and John O'Brennan, Professor of European Politics at NUI Maynooth. Thank you all very much for coming in to me this morning. Stay with us back after the short break. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk.